go. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us on Single Payer Radio. You are listening to WFMP LP Forward Radio at um, 106.5 on the FM dial. Um, just real quick, the opinions expressed on Single Payer Radio are those of the speakers and not the station. So speaking of the speakers, my name is Mary Radford. I am a member of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. And today I will be interviewing Kay Tillo on um, two articles that she's written recently. Um, one is on the Counterpunch uh, website. You can find that there. And she's also co-authored another article for Stat News. So welcome, Kay. And today we're going to be talking about uh, value-based purchasing and what that means and um, why we think that might be an issue. So Kay, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Mary. I'm so glad to be with you to talk about this topic, which I think is really, really important. Yeah, absolutely. And um, well, where I really kind of wanted to start with this was that, you know, I think a lot of people don't really know about value-based care. Um, I think that one thing, the name is very misleading. It sounds, you know, they it's dressed up to sound very um, appealing because it's the word value makes it sound appealing. Um, but can you just kind of give us like, what's, what's the down and dirty of... Um, value-based care. What are we really talking about here? Okay, well, it's a little difficult to explain, but it's really important that people understand it because it's something that is happening uh, pervasively throughout our healthcare system, and it has become the basis for uh, profits, for privatization, for venture capital and private equity, and for making our healthcare system so expensive and so inaccessible to millions of our people. So let me see if I can just start with um, uh, going back in some of the history. You know, in the, in the 90s, we had an explosion of managed care. And that was uh, that the policy experts, that's in quotes because they're not really experts, but they claim to be, and quite frankly, they're recognized as experts. Uh, they uh, claim that our healthcare is too expensive because patients demand too much care and doctors prescribe and carry out too much care. And therefore that uh, at the base of that, they claim, is the fee for service model where a physician is paid for performing a task, a, a, a visit or whatever, a treatment, a diagnosis. And they claim that that's the reason that our healthcare is too expensive and that what needs to be done is there must be management that stops this overuse of care. And therefore, they're saying that, they, that doctors shouldn't receive fee-for-service, hospitals shouldn't receive fee-for-service. They should be instead uh, paid for the value of the outcomes. 
Now, it sounds like that might be a good thing, right? I mean, uh, it sounds like if we pay for value, that would be a good thing. But the problem is the mechanism for implementing it puts into the mix the middleman, the insurance company, the manager, the private capital, the adventure capitalist who manage the care. And then that sets up a new <laughs> configuration where there is profit to be made if care is denied. That's the problem. And that's what we saw in the late 90s. I think people will remember we had things like drive-through mastectomies and we had new moms and babies sent home from the hospital zippity on their way without really uh, an opportunity to evaluate their condition. And we had some terrible outcomes. So we kind of had a rebellion in the country against managed care, which was cutting back on care, cutting back on hospital stays, cutting back on everything and people rebelled against it. Well, that managed care was replaced by this new concept that is supposedly better, but not. It, it's the new managed care that we're going to pay for value rather than on the basis of a particular service. And it really, uh, it was debated in the early 2000s and it really took off because it was written into the Affordable Care Act. That's where, that's where a section of that act, which we all know that it was passed in 2010, and there's a particular section of that act that sets up something called the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. And inside that center, they are supposed to carry out demonstration projects within Medicare, and they're supposed to do away with fee-for-service and institute value-based care. And well, just to, um, not to cut you off, but I, I do want to expand on this idea a little bit of value-based care, because, like, first of all, I love the concept that, like, the problem with our healthcare costs is that like people want to see a doctor and want to receive care. It's like, that's so, that's so mind blowing to me is like the idea that like clothes are too expensive because people want to wear clothes. Like you know, we don't, we don't apply these ideas to like anything else, any other good or service in the world, but like healthcare is like, it's your fault because you want to see a doctor. Um, but like when we talk about value-based care, do we have a sense on like, how are they equating value? Like what, what does that mean value? Well, they can't define it. And that's a part of the problem is that, um, in order to pay for value, you have to figure out some mechanism for how you determine value. <laughs> And they haven't been able to do that accurately. So uh, quite frankly, there's no way to measure that mathematically. And that's one of the reasons why it doesn't work. And in fact, 
uh, all of almost all of the experiments in value-based care are failing. <laughs> I think four of them, four or five out of 54, uh, were total failures. They either didn't improve quality or they cost us more or they didn't reduce the cost. <laughs> so it's been a failure, but they continue with promoting the idea and it continues to uh, be on the agenda. And um, I think, you know, the diagnosis is wrong. We in the single payer movement, we who want universal healthcare, we have a diagnosis. We say that it's the administrative waste and the profits that cause most of the administrative waste that is causing our system to be too expensive. And that if we remove that, which is something in the area of 30% of what we spend, and if we use that money instead to expand care to everyone and to make everybody's care better and add the dental and eyeglasses and the drugs and all the things that we need, that that's the solution. It will control the costs and it will cover all of the people. There, the value-based payment movement or industry, it's now become an industry, says, no, 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 no. The problem is fee-for-service greedy doctors and people demanding too much care and doctors uh, giving too much care, too many tests, too much, you know, all of that overuse of the healthcare system. And therefore, so they have the wrong diagnosis. They can't possibly get the treatment right. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, their treatment is to set up, well, I think the most popular one of, uh, of what they set up is called accountable care organizations. And those bring together doctors and hospitals and insurance companies and uh, supposedly form a network that supposedly will better coordinate the care. Uh, really what it's doing is putting middlemen in the middle of the care because no longer does the physician decide, I think this person needs an MRI, that has to go through someone who is in the insurance company who has to authorize that, whether that should happen yeah. or not. And when you put profit in the mix to where denial of care or delay of care increases profit, I mean, what do you think begins to happen? And that's what we see in our Medicare Advantage plans. Those are the private for-profit Medicare plans. And we've just gotten a, a report from the Inspector General at Health and Human Services that huge numbers, millions of people are being denied care that they should have legitimately gotten through their plans, or they're being asked for pre-authorizations on things that didn't need to be pre-authorized and that delayed the care. And you know, when you're talking about cancer or other things where time is of the essence, these delays, these delays cannot be overcome. They can't be undone. Mm -hmm. And that's what, and Medicare Advantage is one of the programs that functions on this basis, that they're going to coordinate care, co coordinate the care and cut out the unnecessary care. The, re the reality is 
they're cutting out necessary care. Mm-hmm. Delaying yeah. necessary care. Yeah, like there, yeah, there's something unnecessary here, but it's not <laughs> it's not the actual care, right? Like the thing that needs to be cut out is actually them, right? <laughs> right. So that's where we are now. The most recent uh, piece of this puzzle was. Uh, is what was first called the direct contracting entities. And that was, uh, well, it was actually the program came out during the Trump administration and it began putting uh, people who had chosen to be in traditional Medicare into direct contracting entities where there was a profit-making middleman and it was being done without the consent uh, of the person. It is being done, it's in effect right now. Um, and there has been a storm of protest organized by national single payer and physicians for a national health program and some local groups and some retiree groups and social security works, a number of people who are concerned about seniors And uh, as a result of all of that protest, (laughs) uh, the protesters were asking to stop the program and don't put people into plans uh, without their consent and don't put them into plans that are controlled by Wall Street and private equity. Mm -hmm. And uh, (laughs) what this movement succeeded in doing is getting them to change the name of the program. Okay, (laughs) because my next question was going to be like, how does value-based care, like how is that, or is it a part of the Medicare Advantage like mechanism where they separate things or, so it sounds like this is the continuation of that? Yeah, uh, Medicare Advantage runs on the principles of the value-based care movement. It's to coordinate care, supposedly cut down on overuse, you know, that's around it. And the reality is that we taxpayers pay more for the Medicare Advantage program than we do for traditional Medicare. And yet the Medicare Advantage plans have the healthiest people and the least costs and deny the most care, spend less on care, which really a very, very bad deal. But that is indeed a part of the value-based payments that that the the, uh, hospitals and physicians and the caregivers are paid on a capitated basis are mostly a capitated basis, a certain amount per member per month, mm. which sets up that way to make the profit because if you're you're getting paid in advance and then you give less care, um, mm. you make a lot of profit. Now, what they would say on the other side of this is that they're, Uh, protecting you from unnecessary care and they're keeping you healthy and that's how they're improving the value. But um, it's not working. Let me give you an example of it because uh, this one was, um, I think, something that all of us can understand. Part of this movement said, 
with the hospital, when patients have to go back to the hospital after they've been in the hospital for congestive heart failure, if they return to the hospital within 30 days, we're not gonna pay the hospital for the second stay. Now, what they're assuming is that there's something that the hospital did <laughs> in that earlier stay that caused the need to return within 30 days. Um, and that's not so, you know, congestive heart failure recurs. <laughs> that's in the nature of the beast. So it most likely has nothing to do with what the hospital did 30 days earlier, but it sets up a new mechanism where the hospital now doesn't want to take the patient back. So they put them in observation or they refuse to readmit them. Or they send them somewhere else. Right. So now yeah. the, the studies that have been done have shown that th that project, what it's doing is increasing the numbers of deaths because it's denying the care. It's put an incentive on the denial of readmission, the denial of care. And that's one of these value-based payments that's based on nothing that has anything to do with reality. Who decided that if you come back to the hospital within 30 days of having been there before, that it's the hospital's fault from the earlier admission? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the problem with this. It's not based on research or soundness or data or humanity. Mm -hmm. It's based on these, you know, these metrics they put together. And it's a part of the terrible burnout of our caregivers, because in trying to measure value, you have to click a lot of buttons. You know, you have to, you have to click, uh, you know, are you safe in your home? Have you had this shot, that shot? Whatever. Yeah. You know, screens and screens of things you're supposed to ask which has uh, really escalated the, um, the computerized uh, responsibilities. Well, okay, I think you bring up something really important that I want to kind of expand on too. Is um, you know, you and I have talked about this before. I have a I have a really huge interest in public health um, personally, and um, back to this kind of idea is like all of this is expensive because it's our fault. And um, when we, so expanding out from the healthcare system into, you know, the, the systems in which like we are all living under and are all subject to is um, this idea that like you would have congestive heart failure so, uh, so, or like a patient is kind of this like, um, autonomous like vessel of a being and like when you leave the healthcare system or the hospital you know you're not also impacted by your environment so it's like if you leave the hospital you're going back out into the world you're going back out into the environment where you got congestive heart failure to begin with right so uh, this idea of like you know we live in this system where like people have issues with like 
accessing a healthy environment, nutritious food, you know, um, clean air to breathe, um, you know, safe neighborhoods. Many of these people, you know, housing might be an issue. And, and to like look at this issue of just like you're a patient in a hospital and then like we're going to kind of lift you out of this very specific weird circumstances of, of like being a patient in a room and then like expect that to continue on in the larger society is just like it's insane and it goes back to that thing of like healthcare is expensive because it's our fault it's the patient's fault it's the doctor's fault it's the hospital's fault is just yeah it's madness <laughs> it is indeed and you know one of the things that we've discovered of this is that when you say that you're paying uh, physicians in hospitals on the basis of their outcomes, that means that those hospitals and those physicians who serve the underserved, those mm -hmm. people who are less affluent, those people who have less in terms of nutrition, et cetera, those physicians and hospitals get less money because you are assuming that it's something in their care that caused the patient not to have a good outcome. When the reality is all of those things you mentioned are impacting people and those people who are less healthy to begin with are gonna have worse outcomes. And if that means that the physicians who serve them get paid worse, that just makes it even worse because we're now <laughs> cutting uh, the workforce, the professional workforce that's serving the underserved. So it's just a horror, this value-based payments, but it continues to dominate. Um, it is the philosophy uh, during both Republican and Democratic administrations. And it is what they see as the way to reduce healthcare costs. And they are pursuing it with a vengeance. And that really is the problem. Of course, the alternative proposal is what we suggest. And that is that we do away with the profits, the administrative waste, use that money to expand the care and cover everybody under a national system that is humane and just and begun, begins to do away with the discrimination and the suffering that we have from all of these insurance company-based ideas of co-pays and deductibles and uh, co-payments and co-insurance all of that is based on that same idea. People are using it too much. We have to put barriers in the way of people going to the doctor and going to the hospital. And all of those things are really barriers to people get, for getting needed care, mm -hmm. necessary care. And our whole system is set up around these wrong ideas. So we have to change yeah. it. Yeah, I just realized something like, uh, I think the best way to explain this and how I'm probably going to explain this from here on out when someone asks me is value-based care is kind of like, it's like no child left behind, but for healthcare. 
<laughs> now explain how that works. Mary. Explain that to me. How does that? Well, just like the idea that um, you know we're we're not going to fund areas that like actually need it, like especially in the case of like hospitals that serve um, serve the underserved, you know, and taking funding away from them. So now we have to figure out workarounds, oh. you know, and remember uh, No Child Left Behind, I think they were like, teachers were like taking tests for the kids. <laughs> so they're right, right, because the schools who did the worst got their funds cut, right? Right, exactly, yeah. So <laughs> it just escalated into so Now we have to find all these workarounds instead of just giving people what they need. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> it is indeed insane. You know, um, the person who heads up this... Um, this Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. It's yeah, I want to talk about him. Yeah. Her. <laughs> oh, her. That's right. Yeah. No, there was another guy I was thinking of. But yeah, let's start with her. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll start with her. Her name is Liz Fowler. And uh, she hails from the insurance industry. She was a vice president of WellPoint, which became Anthem. And then she got this nice, cushy appointment to serve uh, Senator Max Baucus, and she wrote the Affordable Care Act. <laughs> and um, she wrote into it this section, which is the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. And that's where all of these experiments are taking place that are actually privatizing our Medicare and Medicaid. And then she went back and she worked for Robert Wood Johnson and she worked for the Commonwealth Fund. And then she was appointed by Biden to direct the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. So that's where she is now. And uh, she is you know, a government official, but also a, a watchdog for the insurance industry. And she does that job very well. And she directs that department uh, right now, they are pushing this uh, ACO reach, which is the new name for the direct contracting entities. And they've given it a name that's it's, it means realizing equity, access and community health, something like that. In other words, now they're pretending that it's a program to bring about equity and to do away with the disparities on the basis of race and economics within our system. And nothing could be further from the truth. It's just a new name that disguises its profitability essence. And in fact, under these uh, programs, both DCEs and ACOs, it's possible to make up to 40%, to take up to 40% in profit from the Medicare program. You know, oh, wow. in, in traditional Medicare, you know, only 2% is spent in overhead. Oh, in, Medi wow. <laughs> in Medicare Advantage, they allow them to take 15% in overhead. And that's kind of what is, is true throughout, you know, the. Uh, insurance world, but this can be up to 40%. And that's why, you know, everybody is getting into the healthcare business. It's the new place to make big bucks. And we have uh, 
Walgreens are setting up their plan and they own the Village MD, which is primary care physicians. And they're throughout the country. There's some here in Kentucky. <laughs> uh, CVS is getting into it. Amazon just got into it. Amazon, the biggest, <laughs> the biggest and the worst. They just yeah. bought one medical. One medical owns Iora, I-O-R-A. I-O-R-A is a direct contracting entity. So Amazon is now into the DCEs. And with their billions, who knows what's going to happen next with our health care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was reading about the ACO stuff, and um, I, it was a little confusing. Um, all of this stuff, I, I think, is purposefully confusing, personally. Um but it sounds like the ACO is going to focus more on primary care doctors and like that reimbursement. So is this like, how is this going to impact? Can you speak on that? Like the impact this will have on primary care? Well, um, that's, that's what's happening. ACOs, they say that they want to coordinate care through the primary care doctors and they want to get primary care doctors on board with using their technology and, you know, that they will then pay them a per member per month payment. That's the capitation. And uh, that's what happens in the, you know, the accountable care organizations is that they're trying to move away from fee-for-service and into capitated payments. And, you know, primary care doctors have been under stress for a long time. They're paid the lowest of, of the physicians and uh, their offices, uh, you know, many of them have been bought up by private equity. So they're preying on the primary care physicians because they're being told that they'll have a a regular income and won't have to hassle between trying to collect fees from people who have no money that they will instead give them a steady income as long as they abide by their rules. So, I mean, that really is a big piece of the problem is that professional workers like nurses and physicians are being controlled by those who have money in mind. And that interferes with the professional decision-making process that, you know, people in charge of our healthcare need to be able to use their heads and their hearts mm -hmm. and not be tied by money strings to try to move in a different direction. They're going to put, they put restrictions like how many CAT scans you can order, how many MRIs. Well, you know, <laughs> Who should make that decision? And right. There shouldn't be <laughs> the pressure from, from somewhere else that's based on profit as to what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think like kind of going back um, to what we were talking about before with um, all, uh, all these like kind of measures in the way that the for-profit system is shaping the process in which like care is delivered by the professionals. You know, you, um, there are, and for the listeners, uh, I am a nurse 
and there are a lot of like all these like do 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 that you have to like click through you know i like i've i've got to chart whether or not this patient's a smoker and like I might not do anything about the fact that this patient's a smoker, right? So it's like, I might not be able to do, you know, I can, I can give a patient like, and I'm happy to do it, all the, the smoking cessation and, hey, you know, you shouldn't smoke. Well, everyone knows they shouldn't smoke now, you know, in this day and age, everyone knows that. So it's like, it becomes um, in so much as like what I would rather have is like the opportunity to, to provide good care and counsel for my patient, you've now reduced it to a chore I have to complete. Right. And, um, and yeah, you've, you've altered the way I care for my patient because of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's what's wrong. You know, one of the things that, um, happened in this recent summit on value transformation to value-based care um, was uh, they all discussed wanting everyone to work only at the top of their license. Do you know what that means, Mary? No. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, no, but, but think about it. See, when uh, working with nurses, and healthcare workers, I'm aware of the constant efforts to uh, get jobs done by a, a cheaper classification of worker so that, you know, if they could cut back on RNs and have more work done by AIDS or cut back on, you know, down the line, it, it, it cheapens. It cheapens the care, but it cheapens the cost. So that's a constant pressure within healthcare. Well, what they're saying is that, you know, if, if a doctor doesn't have to do it, then let the nurse practitioner or the one down the line or the lab tech or someone else, someone else. So that's what they kept emphasizing at this meeting is that don't let anybody do any task that is not at the top of that, that someone who has a lesser license and of course, lesser paycheck. Yeah. Do. And so I think there's going to that's one of the big things that's happening in the value based care is stripping as much as they can of the higher skilled uh, professions and substituting people at lower levels to wherever they can. And, uh, you know, I'm not against that if it's done safely, but when it's done on the basis of profit, it's not going to be safe. <laughs> It's going right. to be done. Right. It'll just be yeah. Done. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think like the vast majority of people who choose to work in the health field, you know, we, we are doing this out of a vocation, out of a desire to help people. Um, but like that kind of good hearted humanitarian part of that is, is your foundation, but it's like you, you have to learn like you have to go to school, you have to learn things. So it's like, you know, an aide is going to miss things that a nurse would notice. So if you stretch the nurses out too thin and give them too many patients and, and now you're backlogging all of this, you know, um, the aide can do the best that they can, but they don't have the education that a nurse has had or, you know, the training that a nurse has had to like recognize problems you know, that are 
um, just starting to be problems before they get to be major issues that are potentially, you know, life-threatening. And it's the same with, you know, going up the line. It's, it's the same with doctors as well. If you, you know, if you're putting too much on nurses do and doctors are going to also miss stuff. Yeah. Yeah. One of our, one of the nurses I worked with had this saying, she said that the, even the most excellent nurse can be overworked to the point of incompetence. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's just true that mm -hmm. there is only so much that one human being can do, no matter how highly skilled. And, uh, you know, they're always stretching that and trying to make it go further. So that's, yeah. that's one of the, the concepts within the value-based payment movement is that we're going to cut the costs by making sure that nobody does the tasks that can be done by somebody at a lower skill and lower pay grade. So that's one of the things that's happening. <laughs> and they're of course trying to, to uh, move a lot of things to telehealth. And um, that indeed is a problem as well. You know, I think that the, the uh, uh, California nurses have a campaign against uh, uh, a home alone about uh, putting people at home on monitors without um, a real person there and uh, having hospital at home instead of having people where they have access to real care. And uh, we all know how many times our computers go on the blink and have to get reset. So think about the people that are at the mercy of just monitoring technology without a human being with a heart and a head. Right. Um, and, and an education and a skill set. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> to be yeah. able to help. So it really, I mean, that's, they're moving towards telehealth, towards, you know, everything, uh, but, you know, highly skilled people doing the care. And they're moving towards, they say that they're going to get the money um, to transform primary care through venture capital and uh, and uh, private equity, <laughs> Amazon, Walgreens, CDS, you know, all of these things are going to be going into into healthcare. So um, it really is a, a huge concern. Um, there are uh, some good things to report. <laughs> And that is that this the movement to stop the DCEs, the direct contracting, that puts people in traditional Medicare and plans that are owned by for-profit companies. Recently, um, the Texas healthcare activists were able to persuade the uh, congressman from their area, uh, Representative Lloyd Doggett, to write a letter to Health and Human Services saying in this program, in this ACO reach, and uh, don't have people put into uh, for-profit systems without their consent. So that was a victory <laughs> of, uh, of our movement. And he is the uh, chair of the subcommittee on health under the Committee on Ways and Means, and it's a big, powerful committee. So I don't know how much impact it will have, but at least he took a stand. And he took a stand because 
the people who cared about health care within his constituents pressed him to do so. So I think that's the direction that there is hope is that if people understand what's going on and then stand up to try to get their political representatives to actually represent them, uh, that that's the area in which there is hope for us to have a different outcome. Yeah. Um, so just for the listeners, um, Kentuckians for single payer, we do not um, endorse candidates. That That's that's not what we're about. Um, just to clarify, but it's OK. Have we made any headway with some of our elected officials? Well, we have. Um, we uh, spoke of the congressman who represents Louisville is uh, uh, Representative John Yarmouth. And he did join in signing a letter that was signed by, I think it was 54 congresspersons who opposed the direct contracting entities. So that was a good thing. I don't know that he has spoken out outside of that, but that was good that uh, he signed on to that letter. And um, I don't think any of the others in Kentucky have done so. Mm. It'd be awful nice if they did. <laughs> Yarmouth, uh, Yarmouth will be stepping down, so um, he will be replaced at the next election cycle. Um, so we'll have to see um, uh, what, what, if either of the candidates are willing to also sign on for that as well. We will work on it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we will. <laughs> you know, one of the things that we've done is uh, we've tried to contact uh, the candidates before the primary and offer a free program presentation on single payer health care so that uh, all the candidates going into the primary would have the advantage of at least knowing what it's about and being able to take a stand for it if they chose to do so. So, Can we uh, hear back? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we've talked with a lot of them. Good. <laughs> uh, we have talked with uh, a whole lot of them and we persuade a lot of them. Um, so anyway, that's an ongoing process. <laughs> Yeah, and also we should mention for the listeners, this this isn't something we just offer for politicians. We're we're happy to come to um, give education to you know if you have a a group that um, you'd like to learn more about this stuff, um, you can. What's the best way to contact us if if anyone wants to host an event where where we come and do an education? Well, um, they could go to our website which has our contact information. And our website is kyhealthcare.org. And once you get there, you should be able to find uh, my phone number and, and our email. And uh, you could sign a petition against DCEs there. Uh, you can find all kinds of uh, information on, on the website, but we do, you know, we, that's what we, we believe the solution is through the public understanding the healthcare system and using their rightful human concern for making it better 
to change what exists politically. So since that's the way we see how we change it, we've got to reach out to the entire public. So we do programs for college classes or union groups or, or church or other faith-based groups. And um, we do them free of charge. We can do PowerPoint presentations. We think that once people know the facts, that they will uh, be in agreement. And in fact, you know, uh, this, the polls show that we have majority support within our country uh, for a national, universal, not-for-profit, single-payer mm -hmm. that would cover every single person, every single person with no barriers to care. And that, you know, we, we have to get from here to where we have the ability to enact that in national legislation. And that's the rough spot for us. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, so just, I wanted to get those plugs in um, <laughs> for our group real quick. Um, you can also find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Um, and you can reach out to us there as well. But I want to go back to something we were talking a little bit before, because you brought up Liz Fowler and I thought you were going to bring up Ezekiel Manuel. Oh. <laughs> That's who I thought we were about to talk about. Oh, we have to talk about Zeke. We do. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I don't know. Where should we begin? Well, um, let's start with, I guess, his kind of backstory. It, it sounds like he was also one of the architects of the Affordable Care Act. And he was a he was a keynote speaker for the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. Is he a part of that group? I'm trying to remember the article now. Um, uh, he would ally himself with that group. I don't think he's a part of it. But he, you know, he's referred to as an architect of the Affordable Care Act, as one of the people who helped to write it, along with people like Liz Fowler. And uh, he is, he, so he was a health policy, I guess an advisor or whatever, he was inside that administration, the Obama administration. And uh, he is, <laughs> he, he's very um, outspoken about what he believes in. And he is the one who wrote the article that he wants to die at age 75. Mm -hmm. Um, because he claims that uh, people are less creative and less productive beyond that age. Um, <laughs> which Speak for uh, yourself, first of all. <laughs> too much confidence. You know, he's an oncologist. So I can, you, can you imagine what his 75-year-old patients think about that? But well, yeah, I mean, yeah. That was, that was the... Um, what he wrote, which you would think that somebody who thinks that ought not to be let anywhere near our Medicare system, mm -hmm. <laughs> where we have people at all ages who are seeking to get care. But, you know, one of the things he does is that he very distinctly says he's opposed to single payer health care. And he's opposed to it because he thinks it's un-American. Yes, that's what I wanted to touch on, because that is like, what does that mean? What does that even, 
you know, and that's like something I wrote down when I was kind of preparing for this interview is like, there is this vein of like sneakiness. And that's the only that's the best way I can describe it is like, it's sneaky that like seniors are put on Medicare Advantage plans without their knowledge. Uh -huh. It's like, it's sneaky that like, they don't really define what value means and value based care. And it's sneaky that to call single payers just un-American like what what does that mean well he says <laughs> he he says that it goes against America's core values and that it removes any possibility for there to be free enterprise and a market for companies within the healthcare system and that that would be uh, un-American if uh, they weren't able to profit from the healthcare system. So that's his mindset, you know, that's what he believes and, and that's how he thinks. And um, he's a big advocate for the Affordable Care Act. And he made a speech about how, uh, uh, he's a Democrat. He says the, the Republicans should stop putting down the Affordable Care Act because if we don't fix this Affordable Care Act, people are going to get disgusted and go to Medicare for all. And then where will they be? And so he sees fixing the Affordable Care Act as the way to stop us from getting a Medicare for all system within the country. And that's what he was preaching. And he, he spoke at that national meeting, but you see, he's also, he's into venture capital now. He's uh He's on the, the board of uh, Village MD, and he's on, the, there's, there's an Oak HCFT, which is a venture, you know, venture cap funds, entrepreneurial things within healthcare, and he's on the board of that. So he's really, um, you know, while he says that uh, you know this that these these for making healthcare the best it can be. The reality is that the program he designed has set up a way for him to make profit and for him to function within that that uh, venture capitalist world. So anyway, I don't know how old he is now. He's but he probably he's probably in his late sixties. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know whether yeah. he'll change his view, but. I think that um, when he wrote that article, what was it? It was, I think it was in I think American Prospect. I'm not certain what that was in, but um, you know, it's like, you know, it would be wrong to say, I think everybody should die at 75. So he put it on himself, but it was a way of saying he does not value anybody's life. Uh, after those years, and uh, quite frankly, you know, you should just move out of the way. <laughs> yeah. So it really, you know, it's a despicable way of looking at the world in a very inhumane way. And people who think that way should not be in charge of anybody's health care. Uh, no. Oh, I think his other company is Oncology Analytics. And they do the, the uh, computations for Humana to determine what kind of oncology treatment someone should have. So 
I wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's just a really deplorable way of thinking about it. And it, and it goes back to, you know, this idea of like, it, it's expensive because it's our fault. And it's just, I mean, it's, um, I, I don't think it's hyperbolic to say, I mean, this is, this is a fascist line of thinking that like, there's just this large group of people that serve no value in society is just, is awful. It's just awful. And I've been jumping on, you know, Zeke Emanuel, and he is a Democrat. And that's not to say that there's any Republicans in this business that oh, are. Oh, for sure, yeah. <laughs> you know, the person, uh, uh, Adam Baylor, was appointed by Trump to head up this department. And before he could even take the position, he had to get rid of his stock in Landmark, which was a healthcare company. I think they deal with uh, recovery from addiction and all. I think that's what their business is. And uh, so he had to get rid of his, his uh, company before he could even take the position because it was a conflict of interest. And then uh, as soon as he was out of the picture, he went right back in to venture capital and healthcare. So that kind of revolving door between the people within the government agency making the rules are the same people who outside of it are profiting from the system. Another one, it's a guy named Will Schrank. <laughs> <It's, laughs> that's his name. That's a villain's name. <laughs> Will Schrank is the chief medical officer at Humana. But his prior position was director of evaluations at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. Mm. And so there, you know, he was setting up the rules, how you evaluate programs. And then he's out working for the company, you know, Humana is a direct contracting entity running DCEs in a whole number of states in the country. So that back and forth, I mean, it's worse than the oil companies. You know, we always say that's a problem is that, you know, that, that the industry gains control over its regulators. Yeah. You know, and therefore they don't regulate, they can, the industry and corporations control them. And that's what's happening in healthcare is that the industry is uh, synonymous with the, the groups that are supposed to oversee them. And yeah. um, that's why, you know, we have to rescue healthcare from this corporate control and give it to the people who, um, to oversee it by people who are, professional and humane and just and don't have a profit interest in seeing you not get well. Yeah. Well, I think that's the perfect sentiment um, and, and um, statement to end. Um, before we go, I do want to make sure I plug these two articles. Um, so the first one is titled Value-Based Care, um, that's in scare quotes, is a pretext for privatization that was written by K for counterpunch.org that is from July 13th and the second article that Kay wrote with Kip Sullivan and Anna Ma Malinow did I, I hope yeah. I said that right okay 
and that is entitled value-based payments has produced little value it needs a time out and you can find that on statnews.com um yeah so okay thank you so much uh this was a really great conversation i always love talking to you um so yeah thank you for spending this time um and again everyone you're listening to wfmp lp forward radio at 106.5 on the fm dial and the opinions expressed on single pair radio are those of the speakers and not the stations Thank you so much, Kay. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Mary. And for everybody who wants to get involved with Kentuckians for Single Payer, we need you. So you can see us at kyhealthcare.org. And we would love to have you be a part of a movement that has to win to make healthcare a reality for all of our people. Absolutely. Solidarity, everyone. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mary.